Welcome to the Defiant Business Podcast. A business podcast produced by Defy the Status Quo for forward-thinking businesses and savvy professionals looking to defy the status quo of mediocre customer experiences, barely surviving businesses, and haphazard business development. We'll explore best marketing and sales practices, improving business processes, attracting your ideal clients or customers, striking your perfect work-life balance, business basics, intentional inclusion in business, and so much more. Thank you for joining me today. Let's do this. Okay, everybody, this is our final episode with Rachel Druckenmiller, the founder and CEO of Unmuted Life. And I'm I'm just so excited for this episode because we're digging in a little bit into something that, you know, Rachel has devoted her passion and energy towards going into organizations and speaking to them about this. And so we're going to talk about how you can at pretty much any level of an organization, use your voice for impact and influence. And this, again, ties directly to the name of Rachel's company, The Unmuted Life, and the potential that exists when we hit the unmute button. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm going to turn that into a shirt somehow. Watch. (laughs) So, Rachel, when... I think it's also it's important maybe to address first that what what do we mean by impact and influence? Those are really big words like in that mm-hmm. they imply a ton of power there and I know for a lot of people especially I mean I guess I would say probably at almost any level of an organization it can feel like you don't necessarily have power. So so what mm-hmm. should we be looking for when we're when we're mulling over the those types of words impact and influence? I mean, I think in terms of, you know, we often think that there has to be some grand gesture, but just like a habit, it's the accumulation of these little things over time that leads to a greater impact. So for instance, when I think back to how I started in my career, I mean, you know, I, I started listening to lots of webinars, reading lots of articles and talking to lots of people in my industry that were doing things differently. And it wasn't until seven or eight years into my career of doing that that I got that recognition for being the number one health promotion professional in the country. So it's like, it took me eight years (laughs) of getting curious and digging deep and learning and, and, and thinking about my own experiences. I just think, what if you had quit at seven? Right. Because I didn't think I was where I wanted to be. Right. Because I was like, I mean, I'm working for a 50 person company in Baltimore. No one's heard of, you know, I could have just decided that. And then a year later, I'm on a stage in San Diego in front of 400 of my peers from all over the country. And then I have a, a platform overnight. And so it's the, it's the little, it's the accumulation of the little things done consistently and authentically that lead to these big moments of impact or breakthrough. So I think it's showing up consistently with a goal of serving and helping and supporting. And I think when we do those things, consistently over time with the right intentions, it inevitably leads us to have the ability to influence and to shape people or outcomes. And when we have that higher level of influence, we feel like 
we're making more of an impact. So I've never really thought about that before, but that's what comes no, to mind. That was when you wonderful. Ask and I, again, referring back to the many books that I've read now as a business owner, um, yeah, consistent, the way that you consistently show up basically determines your life. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's big and that's heavy. So we're, I'm going to sit with that after we're done here today. So, but I want to keep going because, because I feel like I can sit with that for a while. So let's, I'd like to look at the lower levels of an organization because again, I've been one of the cogs in the wheel at the, Mm -hmm. in, you know, at the very lowest levels of an organization. Like I, I mean, almost any civilian job, I'm thinking like, man, that doesn't really compare to being like a private in the army. Mm -hmm. Like they could literally make me cut grass with scissors. I I mean, I didn't have to cut grass with scissors, but I saw people cut grass with scissors. Like it's a very thankless job being a private, but how can someone use their voice at lower, Mm -hmm. at the lower levels of an organization to achieve, you know, any sort of effective change? In an organization that's open to that, obviously. Uh, Yes, that's a big caveat, but important to mention. Part of it, I think, is to recognize that your role does not determine, your role or your title, your tenure, does not determine your ability to have influence. And I think about when I, I mean, when I started at this company, I was answering phones, taking boxes to storage and going through 30 pages of size six font on Excel spreadsheets doing commission tracking. Like this was hardly glamorous work, but a couple of things I think really helped me. One was my attitude. And that was that I was grateful to be there. And if I finished something early, I went to my boss and said, Hey, what else you got for me to do? So that way they knew, Oh, this is somebody who's going to show up and work hard And I'm going to be able to trust them because I know what their capacity is and they're coming to me for more work. All right. So this is somebody who clearly wants to be given additional challenges. And I did that from the time I was like 19, you know, and I would, I would demonstrate that. I also was very intentional about pursuing learning and connecting with people that I admired. I mean, this is when LinkedIn wasn't really much of a thing. I mean, in 2006, 2007, I'd message people on LinkedIn who I'd heard on some webinar and be like, hey, will you talk to me for a half hour? I think you're cool. And and they would talk to, I'm like, here, I'm like something 21 year old lives in Baltimore, right? And, and I can theoretically do nothing for them. And they were like, sure, people like to be flattered. And, and they were open to that. And those, those initial conversations ultimately led to experiences where I was like a panel on, on their webinars eventually. And I was meeting them and speaking at the same conferences they were 10 years later, which was really cool, but it started small. So I think, I think one, not letting your title limit you showing up with an attitude that is, I am here to help and to serve. And to demonstrate that you desire to be challenged and that you're willing to pursue those opportunities and to really get clear on, well, what might be something that I'm interested in that I want to explore? And so I started asking to go to national conferences, national wellness conferences, when I was a year and a half into the work I was doing, 2008, on a conference in Michigan. And the case I made, this is so important when you're a position where you don't necessarily inherently have as much power 
I made very clear the business case for them for why to send me. Hey, if you send me to this thing, I'm going to come back. I'm going to bring everything that I learned about best practices to us so that we can be positioned as thought leaders. And then I'm going to share that with our clients so we can help our clients be positioned as thought leaders. And in doing that, I unknowingly was playing to something that was very important to our CEO, which was being seen as a thought leader. And so I, I just started doing that. I took these kind of small incremental risks. And I found that going through that, that process of being eager and willing to help and to learn and to, to look for gaps, to look for gaps where I saw, hmm, this thing is happening and it looks like they want to get here, but they're not sure how they're going to bridge this. So I would just make up stuff for myself to do. I'd be like, well, we don't have somebody who's creating like, you know, requests for proposal, like PowerPoints as part of our sales deck. I was the youngest kid at the company, youngest person at the company. And I was like, hey, I can do PowerPoints. Do you want me to do that for you? And I can customize them and whatever. So, so I was looking for ways to be of service constantly. And so people couldn't, people couldn't ignore me because I was like always around. <laughs> that is a really good point. That's, I mean, and like you said, like people, people like to be flattered. You're able to get on the phone with people who, you know, would have seemed out of reach at your age, but you're like, Hey, the worst they can do is say, no, I might as well ask. And I think we need to, I actually wrote a post on this today, but I think we need to be more conscious of the, of the actual value of potential failure. The worst they could have said was no. Like they weren't going to report you to your supervisor and get you <laughs> fired. And then you were never going to get another job ever again. And then you're going to be living under a bridge somewhere, never able to recover from asking the wrong person for a phone <laughs> call. Like that's, that's not what's happening. And we have this misjudged value of what, what the cost of failure is and not paying enough attention to the benefits of that potential success. Like, okay, what if they say no? What if they say no? Then you move on. But what if they say yes? But what if they say yes? And in along those lines, I mean, I started doing something that we did a lot internally at the company, which was making a list of my highest payoff activities, which were the things that I did best that I started to realize people gave me consistently positive feedback about that I loved to do. So I started to track those in one column and then in the other column, and I forget where this originally came from. I know our CEO got it from, from a book somewhere, but it was called Your Energy Vampires. What are the things that suck the life out of you? Make a list of those and be mindful of that. And so I started when I was like 25, 26, I started going to my boss and saying, hey, here's all the things I do particularly well that you're getting like the best deal out of Rachel when I'm doing these things because other people can't do these things quite the way that I can. And like they seem to be having a positive impact. These things are things that take away from me doing these highest payoff things that bring you the greatest value. So might there be a way that we could delegate some of these, even perhaps to an intern and, and, and map out a plan for that? I was, I was like asking for support when I was like 25 or 26 years old because I was able to show consistent value of the work that I was doing when I was at my best. And so we have to get clear and understand what we do particularly well, and what are the things that if we're doing them, oh my goodness, it's taking us 10 times more effort than it needs to, and we might need to find somebody else to do those things, or at least have a conversation with our leader to say, hey, if you want to get the best out of me, having me do these things is, is not the best way to do it. And that's an honest conversation, and definitely, I think, ties back to our previous episode 
on connecting care because if if you're a leader and you want your employees to be able to come to you and tell you why they aren't as efficient or as effective as they can be, then that has to come from a connect and care place, not from a command and control place, because the person who's in command and in control is not the person who's open to that type of feedback from the bottom up. So wonderful. So this year I've been a part of a few more diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And so this particular question I think is really important. Well, they're all important questions, let's be honest, but from the perspective perspective of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I wanted to ask you what people at higher levels can do to elevate their voice, to unmute, because when we look at, again, looking at the numbers for for women, looking at the numbers mm-hmm. for, you know, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, mm-hmm. looking at those numbers and how they are represented in our leaders, it can be hard when you're the only woman in a room. Mm-hmm. It can be hard when you are the only you know, obviously brown person in the Mm -hmm. room. And I've had these discussions before and I've determined that I would rather be the only woman than be the only brown person. But Mm -hmm. for people who that is their daily existence where they feel muted because they, you know, they don't feel as if they are reflected in their surroundings, but they want to have an impact and influence. Do you have any particular guidance for those people? And, and, and I'll say gender identity and then like mm-hmm. our, our racial and ethnic backgrounds are just one of the reasons why we might feel muted, right? Because also, you know, if you're in the L- LGBTQ plus community, I think it's like 1% or something are, are at the leadership levels and, and they mm-hmm. are open about being in the LGBTQ plus community, right? So if you're a leader who's not yet comfortable enough to be open, then you are also muted. And that's a piece of your life that you're not bringing to work, if you will. So there are a lot of different intersectionalities which could cause one to be Mm -hmm. unmuted. So those are my two specific examples being, you know, a woman and then also, you know, being a, a multiracial person. But, you know, other people have these other experiences, but the collective effect is that, you know, even at leadership levels, we can still feel muted. So what I was hoping to get is, Mm -hmm. is your advice on, like you said, small measurable things that we can do, right? It doesn't have to be grand. We don't have to stand up on the table and be like, hey, y'all are going to listen to me today. Like it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, if that's what you want to do, maybe, but it doesn't have to be that way. So could you give us some insights on maybe some like some, some of those small measurable steps that we can take as leaders in an organization where we may feel muted for a variety of different reasons? Hmm. Powerful question. Um... I think one thing that comes to mind for me as you're asking that is the importance of, as a leader, creating space for conversations where people get to hear each other's stories. Because if we, and I'll explain what this looks like in a moment, if we are just seeing someone as a label, it is really easy to diminish to discount, to make assumptions, to make judgments about ourselves and about others. And one of the things that I've seen that's been particularly powerful, and this is something that's very easy to do virtually, actually, and a lot of companies are still in a virtual space. Having a conversation at the start of like specifically designating time to do something like this, 
where perhaps it's starting at the management level of, I was involved in a women's retreat a couple of weeks ago and it was called the story of us. And you share, each person gets to share in a small group, three to four people, you know, in a, in a breakout room, for instance, share a story that really reflects uh, a part of yourself that you would want to share with people. And when we create a space, I mean, think about how infrequently people get the opportunity to share the story of how they've become who they've become or a time where they've gotten through something that felt incredibly insurmountable, but they showed up on the other side of it with strength and in a way that they're proud of. How often do we create the space in organizations, in the workplace to have those types of dialogues with each other? We don't. And so if we cannot connect first as humans through our stories, like good luck getting systemic change to happen. I I really think that first and foremost, when we start to see someone as, we start to see someone as human first, and we start to see, oh, this person struggles with insecurity, or this person struggles with fear of judgment, or this person has held themselves back, and they've shown up courageously in this way, and this is something they've done and been through that has made them who they are. I feel like when we create the space for people to have those kinds of conversations in smaller settings, and then for instance, so the way that this this would look in terms of trying to be practical here, an organization were to facilitate an experience like that, perhaps starting with a group of leaders with that prompt of sharing a story about either a time you've been through a seemingly insurmountable obstacle and came on the other side, or a story that reflects something important about who you are as a person that you get, you know, five minutes to share that and that you just get to be seen. You're not going to have somebody say, Oh yeah, that happened to me too. Oh yeah. Same thing. Or you're afraid you're going to be interrupted. You get the space to be heard. And then what you can, what another step to take after that is to have people reflect back. Something I appreciate about what you just shared is, and then you get to have that reflection strengthened. You get to have that, your voice being heard strengthened because somebody listened enough to be able to then reflect back something that they see in you that they appreciate. And imagine if organizations were to do that every other week, even what would change? Like, I just feel like certain conversations would naturally shift because when I refer to this as the soul behind the role, when we get to know the soul behind the role, we don't show up the same way in our interactions. We just don't, unless we're a egomaniacal narcissist, which they are out there, but they're not the masses. I find that just practicing with something like that. And then coming back to the main room and inviting people to appreciate each other. And you would do, you'd start doing this in a small group at first, as you can imagine why yeah, that would be people important. would be a lot more comfortable in a small group. Yeah. But like, can you imagine? I mean, people always cry when they share these stories because they're they're used to they're used to coming to work as a divided yes. self. There is myself that I show up at work and there is myself that I am when I'm not here. And the two people are never going to meet each other. And that is exhausting. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <it is. laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Yeah. I, I thought about that. I'm not sure why I was thinking about this, but I was thinking about, oh, last night I was telling people that being in the military, it's hard. It's good old boys club very often. It favors, you know, physically stronger people, which often tend to be men. And I was like, yeah, like, I mean, I was a bodybuilder while I served and uh, like I purposely cultivated not just physical strength, but also a particular persona that intimidated people 
on purpose because Mm -hmm. I felt like that was how I had to show up. Were there elements of my true self in there? Absolutely. But some of them were incredibly exaggerated, incredibly exaggerated. And and some of them just weren't true at all. But I found that that was the most effective way to get the sort of change and things that I wanted to see. Like that was the most effective way at the time. That was my coping mechanism, but that was the most effective way that I knew how. And I didn't realize later until later that it part of it was my my empathy, which allowed me to kind of be a situational chameleon, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that was also exhausting. Like I could, if I was in three different environments, which was very often when I was in the military, if I was in three different environments and three, each of the environments had different expectations and emotional temperatures and what was considered acceptable, I could match them if I wanted Mm. to almost without fail. But by the end of the day, like I was exhausted. Yeah. It's truly exhausting to do that. And it's amazing how powerful these experiences can be. I remember sitting around, it was like an executive leadership dinner I got invited to. I don't know why I got invited to it. I was not an executive leader, but- You we impact executive table. leaders though, Rachel, you do. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> I guess I was like, I'll take a free steak from it's Chris, whatever. But I remember the conversation was, what is something that happened when you were a kid? And I had never had a conversation like this then or since at this company that affected you as a, that happened as a kid that has affected who you've become as an adult. And people went around the table and they shared. And I have to say, for one of our leaders, that was the most vulnerable I ever saw him up to that point and since then. And the story I heard that he shared really opened up a world of understanding for me of, oh, that's why he shows up that way now. He still thinks he's that 13-year-old kid who was feeling that some kind of way. And it just gives a, a tremendous level of, it creates this level of empathy and, and compassion that judgment can't coexist with those things. And, you know, I, I, I find it that even if we ask a question like, if it feels, if some of those things we talked about already feel a little too deep, if you were to have in those conversations, what's something people often get wrong about you? That's something people often misunderstand about you. We all want to be understood. All of us feel misunderstood in some way. Can you just open up the door to have that kind of a conversation? It allows for us to build trust. Again, assuming that we're not in a toxic environment, like because those conversations are going to be held against you in a toxic environment. There's that's like we can have a whole other hour conversation about some of that stuff. But but if you're in a place where the leaders genuinely care. And often what's required, Ruthie, is that a leader goes first. So if you're going to bring people in a conversation like that, you as a leader, one of the people on your leadership team, perhaps the one that people respect the most, or even the, actually, either the people, the person people respect the most or the people that the person that you think people struggle the most with so that you can humanize that person to say, hey, here's something that people often misunderstand about me. Or here's something that happened at some point in my past that's influenced who I've become. Or here's a story about me that I think will help paint a picture of why I am the way that I am. When the leader goes first, that creates the space that says, this is normal here. And now that I've done it, I'm giving you permission and an invitation 
to join the conversation. Okay. So I have to say, especially with this season coming out, you know, in the latter portion in our last quarter of the year, I'm positive that you've given a ton of people, whether they're employees, whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they're at the top of the organization, the middle or at the lower levels, you've given them a ton to think about, especially as we're looking towards the future, you know, and looking to move into 2021. So Rachel, thank you so much for doing this series. Yes, I, enjoy, I, was just I enjoyed incredibly it. honored that you agreed to do it. If I'm being honest, oh, oh my goodness, I was excited. I was like, this is going to be a, a fun because you're just fun and funny and entertaining and thoughtful. So I knew it was going to be a good a good series of chats. Yes, yes, and that's exactly <laughs> right. And so, if you enjoyed this series, Rachel's interview series, and the topics that we covered, she talks about these things all of the time in a, you know in a variety of formats. She's doing lots of interviews, lots of of speaking. She's on LinkedIn and Instagram every day. So I highly encourage you to follow her in those places. We'll have all of her links in the show notes. And, you know, Rachel's got some stuff cooking, guys. So don't sleep on her. Follow her now. So that way when, you know, as her business grows and things change, you can be the first person to have, you know, this information and move on it. Like, trust me, you don't want to sleep on Rachel for sure. But Rachel, which social media platform is your favorite? Yes. Okay. So make sure you follow her on LinkedIn for sure, because at a minimum, if you don't like LinkedIn, logging in and seeing Rachel's content will not just inspire you and move you to action. It will get you to log on to LinkedIn and handle your business. But Rachel, thank you so much for joining me for this. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited to see, you know, the feedback and the conversations and the things that we get to talk about because you invested this time with me today. So thank you so much. You are so welcome. And I look forward to hearing from people about what resonates and what's helpful. Yes. And before I sign off, I just want to remind you that you can get Rachel's Resilience Toolkit, which we'll also have a link to in the show notes from, if you don't click that link, you can always go to her website and get it, but make sure you check it out. If anything at all resonated with you, then you need to check out the toolkit. So just keep that in mind. And again, Rachel, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Ruthie. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of the Defiant Business Podcast. Please make sure that you've subscribed and do be sure to leave us a review if you found this episode at all helpful. And if you think it would be a great resource for someone else, be sure to share it with them. See you next time.